Afternoon, folks, and welcome to the Health Lab. I am Joel Bland, occupational therapist and your host. Today, episode two features Dr. John McDonald. John is a psychologist originally from the United States, but based out of the Vancouver area for the past 40 some odd years. John has extensive experience practicing in the areas of neuropsychology, rehabilitation of mood disorders such as depression and anxiety, as well as treating issues such as post-traumatic stress. So we're going to get into his experiences, his stories, and any tips or advice that he can give the listeners out there and anyone out there suffering from anything related to a mental health condition, or if anyone knows anyone suffering from a mental health condition, I'm sure John will have excellent, excellent strategies that you can draw upon. So let's get right into it. Dr. John McDonald, welcome to the Health Lab podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Yes. So excited to talk to you. I, I, I know we've been working together on files here and there over the past five years or so and uh excited to get to know you on a bit of a deeper level and explore some some of the strategies that have helped you as a clinician and maybe some strategies that can help the general population out there in terms of taking control of their health good let's start yeah so i i know you have been in this business a long time and i did want to clarify how long how long have you been a psychologist for i think it's 43 years Wow, that is excellent. It's a long time. It yeah. blows my uh, long so time of practice. <laughs> it blows my mind to start. It, it doesn't, and it doesn't seem like forty-three years. It, uh, it, uh, I remember when I was at uh, gave a re, uh, retirement speech uh, um, when I retired from the GF Strong Rehabilitation Center, and I said, you know, my enthusiasm um, today is about equal to what it was the first day I started working here. And the key is taking care of self. And establish boundaries between work and the activities out that you do outside of work. Mm, and I, I like I, I like what you said about enthusiasm. And I want to get okay. to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned about taking control of yourself and establishing those boundaries. And I did have a question about h- how you do that as a psychologist. How do you manage burnout and and ensuring that you know you don't take on too much of the say, psychological or, or emotional issues that your clients bring to you on a day-to-day basis? Well, as an example uh, that I've always practiced that I will do after this session today is go exercise. For me, mobility is the key. Unfortunately, there is one gym that has opened up in the city uh, uh, that has limited capacity of individuals, and I've started that right away. So doing something different then staying in my head works. And it has always worked such that, for instance, if I wasn't exercising, one could go home and sit on the couch and easily ruminate about what has happened in the day. And I just don't go down that, that avenue. I do something completely different from work. And that sets the stage for the rest of the day and evening. And also makes certain that I get good sleep. So for me and I, for myself, and I advise clients, imagine a day is divided into three chunks. They're not delineated by absolute time boundaries, but by, by activities. So a third of your day is devoted to work. 
a third of the day is activities outside of work that are meaningful for you. And the third is sleep hygiene. Wow. Excellent. Excellent tidbits there. And um, sleep hygiene. Um, I, I want to touch on that because um, that's such a trending thing these days. And lack of sleep is, is, is so common in this day and age, this age of anxiety we're said to be living in. Do you have any strategies out there to, to foster or, or facilitate good sleep hygiene? Well, I encourage my, myself and clients uh, to turn off a lot of the technologies uh, before one goes to bed. And if one wakes up in the middle of the night, as we usually do, don't go to your emails and checking things. Don't, don't check Facebook and so forth. Uh, so to, to regulate that and um, uh, stop your reading a couple of hours if one can. And I will admit to myself, I'll admit to clients that I, I don't always do this, but I also recognize when I'm not doing it, that I'm probably going to be compromising my sleep because mm. we're not robotic in terms of our daily functioning. Um, and when I have a difficulty sleeping and, um, and when I talk to clients and they do, um, I encourage people to practice an area of mindfulness uh, called body check in terms of how one's lying in bed and then focusing on the body in the mattress, which how your feet feel like in calves and work your way up to your head. Some I will advise on using some external uh, uh, systems such as uh, using the uh, technology for for, for sleeping in terms of you know the sound of waves or something that is conducive for relaxing and trying to establish as best as we all can uh, a regular time that one is going to sleep. So regular, regular sleep wake cycles, going to bed, getting up at similar times each day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned um, just some of those sleep hygiene practices. And, and again, I know you do a lot of work with sleep with your clients, as do I. And a lot of things that I do is I have them fill out a sleep journal or a sleep diary. Have you done that in the past with your clients? I've talked about it with clients, but I, I will admit to clients uh, that I'm not, I wouldn't be good at that myself. So I don't encourage people to do it. I just present it as a possibility that clients can do it who might be more organized than I am in terms of those kind of details. That's valid. So it's kind of a, a practice what you preach situation, it sounds like. Always. Yeah. And I'll use, I will use uh, methods called behavioral modeling in therapy. This is what I do. This is what I don't do. And, and weave those kind of situations into therapy. If at the moment I think that has therapeutic value. Indeed. So, so tying to a degree your personal story and personal experiences to a degree again, um, if it might benefit the relationship and benefit the client's overall well-being. Definitely. Yeah. And I, just talking about those sleep diaries. So I, I do do them quite often with my clients. And again, tying it to personal experiences. Um, I personally have suffered from poor sleep for a, a number of years. And I started filling out a sleep diary for myself. This is about seven or eight years ago. And what I realized is, well, I've, I've got a bit of a sweet tooth sometimes. And uh, <laughs> so I, I noticed after filling out this sleep diary about my eating patterns, that if I ate sweets on, say, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, and, and Saturday after 8 p.m. or something like that, uh, my sleep would, would be impacted. And that really helped me to make positive choices about my eating habits um, with respect to getting a good night's sleep. Yeah, definitely. And for me also, if I have a couple of glasses of wine with dinner, 
I think that wine converts to sugar in the middle of the night. And so I, I can fall asleep easy. But then when I wake up, I can't fall back to sleep very, quite readily. Indeed. Yeah. I, I'm the same way. That drop in blood sugar level tends to wake us up. Um, because yeah. as far as I know, we, that stimulates the sensation that we need to eat again or get some sugars in our system. But I, I can also say that I don't avoid glasses of wine with dinner. I just know that I'm not going to sleep well that night. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Just pre prepping you for the storm a bit. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, okay, I remember I, I, you said the word enthusiasm. And this is one thing that I've learned a little bit about you, John, in just passing by your office when you are in session with an individual. And quite often I can hear you and I can't hear the client, but I can hear you just some muffles of what you're saying. And I can hear you getting very excited and very enthusiastic about either a strategy or a perspective or an approach. And I almost envision you, I don't know if you're standing at the time, I'd imagine you're still sitting, but I almost envision you standing up and again, just really getting positive about the message that you're trying to deliver. What's the benefit of, of embodying that positivity? Well, I am enthused um, in terms of my own self, in terms of the strategies I'm talking to clients. Uh, and I do, when I'm on the landline, I will walk around. And when I was uh, doing this work at home during the uh, earliest stages of the COVID, I'd walk on my patio and I'd be pacing around talking. Uh, and that's sort of the mobility helps bring some of the enthusiasm uh, uh, to the fold. Uh, but it also depends upon uh, the client and that the clients uh, buy into therapy and that they can feel empowered to carry out those procedures. So if it's a good partnership, then the enthusiasm comes a little more naturally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I, I agree with that. And I mean, I, I, like I mentioned, my approach is somewhat similar um, in terms of the enthusiasm and the positivity and um, having that, well, just bouncing that off of the clients and almost making it a, a, a palpable, tangible experience for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. You, you mentioned um, COVID and, you know, how obviously we've transitioned so much to telehealth um, through COVID or, or from having to as a result of COVID. Any, any strategies out there? I'm trying to tie this to mindfulness a bit, too, and your experiences of relaxation and, and um, sort of letting go. Can you provide any tips or strategies out there for individuals to foster positive mood in light of this current global global condition we're experiencing? Uh, I like to separate out fear of COVID from taking all the health advisory measures um, and to try to encourage clients uh, to contain the level of fear such that they're able to carry out the health advisories, such as the social distancing, the wearing the mask in public and so forth, and washing their hands frequently. But to really uh, transform fear into an action plan, to be concerned about it, but not to be fearful such that it overpowers one and one stays functionally limited and staying at home. Mm, I like that. So now, now but with also on. with many of my, with some of the clients who are, suffer from major depression, I try to use something different because they have a, they said, now I have a reason to stay home, not go out at all. Mm. 
Same with those who are anxious. I was always anxious about going out, now I reinforce it. So I still use that same philosophy. Take the precautions, but let's talk about a, a graduated approach of going out, uh, recognizing that you've put the precautions in place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So kind of like, well, yeah, being, being concerned about it, um, as, as we all should be to, to various degrees, of course, but not being consumed by it, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Valid, valid strategy for, for really all of us. Out for there. all of us. I mean, it's, it's one that I, and I say to clients, I said, when they say, are you, are you fearful? Because I encourage clients to ask me questions. I'll say, no, I, I'm not fearful. I take the precautions that are necessary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just being realistic. Just realistic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So valid, so valid. And I know you work with a, a variety of different client groups or, or client populations. Which ones are you working with predominantly these days? What types of diagnoses? Predominantly, it's uh, people who have depression, anxiety, or combination, which is most often the combination, uh, some post-traumatic stress as well. Uh, and to some extent, uh, although lesser in frequency, chronic pain. Okay. And I know... Uh, Chronic pain and some is, TBIs and some traumatic brain injuries are much, far much less than I was when I was at GF Strong. Right, right. And we'll get into GF Strong in a moment because mm -hmm. I have mm -hmm. some questions about your work there as well. Um, in terms of working with an individual who has, say, post-traumatic stress disorder, or they're afraid of a situation or afraid of a, a, an activity or, or a task or of an environment or what have you, what are some initial steps that you might take with that client, those baby steps that you might start to generate in terms of trying to work towards overcoming that? I start off with uh, an education on what I label the nervous system. And I start with the basic preface, pre, uh, premise that our, our mind is more than our brain. It's the entire nervous system. And we also know that our nervous system stores memories. <clears throat> and very often how our nervous system operates is that something in the present uh, will trigger uh, our nervous system to pull up past experiences that may be related to that. So it may be good experiences such as, such as you're walking by a bakery and you see a cake and in the window say, oh, I had a cake like that when I was 12 years old, my birthday. And not only the... Uh, by the, uh, the factual information, but the whole emotional kind of experience, because then you smile and you have this uh, uh, thoughts and emotions that are binded together in what's called an engram, a memory experience. Mm -hmm. And I say to clients, um, our nervous system automatically pulls up good experiences and some experiences that are bad or traumatic for us. And so I start with an education on how the nervous system functions. And that the, let's say a post-traumatic, uh, uh, experiences, they're going to be pop-ups that are going to occur as well. So they're going to occur if, let's say, for instance, let's say you have a, a police officer that has been assaulted. So any kind of sudden, I acquaint them, I educate, I provide them information on uh, sudden sounds such as ambulance and so forth are going to bother you. Uh, and so we start off with, with an education. And then I want to know more about that functionally. For instance, if they're going out for walks, I want to see if, do they go on the same route all the time or do they do any varying? Uh, and very often they just walk 
the same route only because there's that sense of safety there. So he's trying to sort of break out on a more graduated basis in terms of uh, function to, to the end goal of that you can walk where you choose to, not stay confined because of fear. Mm. Um, and uh, an emphasis was also on that uh, post-traumatic stress is not going to go away. It's going to fade gradually. And I use an example uh, that happened a number of years ago to an individual, uh, um, the former Senator Romeo Dallaire. Now, he wrote a book uh, during the Clinton era presidency, Shake Hands with the Devil. And it's a very emotionally impactful book about when he was the... Uh, uh, head of uh, the UN forces in Rwanda just before the genocide. Okay. So the devil for him was the person he was shaking hands with because Dallaire recognized this person is going to orchestrate a massacre. And Dallaire acquainted the uh, United Nations and the, and the Clinton White House at the time, and no one gave additional troops. And then we know there were over 800,000 were slaughtered in that. So mm -hmm. Romeo Dallaire, after he left Rwanda, be, uh, be, had severe post-traumatic stress. Um, and he, he, he reverted to alcoholism and then uh, was lying on park benches at night and, and finally got the help and then recovered and then became a senator. Um, and then a number of years later, there was a report in, in Canada where six young soldiers across the country, strangers to each other, in a short time period committed suicide. Okay, yeah. And that triggered in Dallaire a recurrence of his traumas. And okay. Then, and then one morning, he was, because he was suffering from fatigue, he plowed his car into the Senate building by accident. Oh, dear. So it demonstrated to me that post-traumatic experiences don't go away. They fade away, but they may come back. And what, you, what I help clients learn is how to sort of put those back, put the jack-in-the-box back down again. These are pop-ups, and I refer to them as pop-ups. And counsel clients not to be afraid of the pop-up. You're not going crazy. Things aren't getting worse. It's just the nervous system popping up again. Interesting. Interesting. What a good, what a good tidbit, um, just in terms of managing expectations. Yes. Um, and and ensuring, ensuring that they you know, expect one of these pop-ups to happen and, and know how to use the symptom management strategies that you've learned that are available at your disposal to, to manage it accordingly if and when it does occur. Absolutely, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I like what you said about, um, you know, people who walk around that same block every single day or what have you because of maybe perceived anxieties from taking a different route or, or, or anything along those lines. And this actually, I had a conversation um, just in the last episode with Philippe de Klerk about setting goals and the psychological benefit of essentially embracing discomfort in a gradual manner. And that exact, mm -hmm. that exact line came up between us. Um, if you walk around the same block every day for the rest of your life at the same pace and the same speed, you're, you're, you're going to get really good at walking around that one block, but you're not going to get as, as good as at walking around the, the, the nearby blocks, um, additional blocks, additional routes, what have you. 
I mean, it's a, those were the post with, with that those kind of post trauma experiences. And again, I, I want to put a plug in. I don't call it a post traumatic stress disorder. Okay. I don't like the word disorder. It's a post traumatic. You, you have post traumatic stress. Period. Right. To show that very often this is a normal consequence of an abnormal experience being a first responder and seeing you know a, a lot of the internal organs displayed from a car accident mm. so it's mm -hmm. not a disorder it's a, it's a condition it's post-traumatic stress period so labeling it or, or, or modifying that name modifying from a disorder and, right. and when i talk about that with clients they're relieved to have the because the shame factor is taken out Certainly, as I, I, oh, I have this disorder. I'm, I'm, I'm broken. I'm, I'm. I'm broken. Yes, Ed. Yeah, you're not broken. A normal reaction to an abnormal experience. Right, and essentially, what you're saying is, is exposure therapy, really, yeah. to a oh. degree. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I work on a lot of that stuff with, with some of my clients who have severe anxieties around, around doing different activities. Um, Oddly enough, anecdotally, um, I'll tell you a little bit of a story about myself with respect to exposure therapy. Um, so I, uh, I have asthma, okay? And the first time I went snorkeling about, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, I, I've always had this fear of being, well, submerged underwater and not being able to breathe, likely as a result of my breathing conditions. And the first time I went snorkeling, you know, I, know, I knew that I could breathe, via the snorkel, but the physical reaction of being submerged underwater, my body thought that I shouldn't be able to breathe. So I immediately started hyperventilating and I was unable to do it. And this actually persisted for a few times. It was about three or four times of me actually trying to snorkel. I would go underwater, immediately start hyperventilating and I would have to abort the mission. And I knew that each time, well, I didn't know at the time, but from taking courses on exposure therapy, I learned that each time that I aborted that mission like that, it really fed into that anxiety of performing that task. So from, from what I did is I took, I took these exposure therapy courses just throughout my you know, ongoing, ongoing education, and I designed an exposure hierarchy for myself. And this had me, I went out and bought a snorkel and I started just wearing it around the house and as I got comfortable doing that, I started wearing it while taking a shower. And then as I got comfortable doing that, I started wearing it while taking a bath and then eventually submerged in a pool. And now I, I scuba dive and I snorkel and I've, I've overcome um, that anxiety, that, that issue that I previously had. So it kind of just speaks to the benefits of that gradual progression in terms of putting yourself into an uncomfortable situation in order to get comfortable doing it. So I got another uh, anecdotal story. So I, I was with a, a dear friend of mine uh, from, from Australia, uh, and we were traveling throughout Vietnam. And we're off the northern coast, up at the northern coast, and um, uh, going on a, 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 a stalactite and stalagmite tour. Cool. Okay. So this boat took us out um, some in, in the ocean into this small area. And said, I'll be back in three hours and, around, and meet you around the opposite side. So we had to walk up these quite steep stairs up to, this, up to the cave. Mm -hmm. So my friend who has COPD said, John, I can't do it. And I said, to her, I said, 
I thought, well, we have to do it because the boat's not coming back here. And we're, in the middle of the, we're in the middle of the ocean here. So I thought, okay, so we will go one step at a time and focus on slowing the breathing down. So we, I talked us both through going up the stairs. I'm thinking, we've got to make it at the top of the stairs because the boat's <laughs> not coming back. It's and make again, or break. Yeah. Make or break. And, and we made it to the top. But that's kind of that graduated, slower approach. Keep your mind in the present. Don't let it go down into this sort of any kind of traumatic narrative that one's imagination can create. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that's a perfect analogy too, because you're seeing a staircase, and that's what it is. It's it's going up a little going staircase, up. one step at a time, regardless of the issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you made it. We made it, and I mean, it was magnificent to see these naturally form. I forget which if stalactites go from the top down or the stalagmites go from the bottom up, but these enormous size. Wow. Uh, structures. Uh, it was just amazing. Yeah. Very cool. I always, Very I always cool. mix, I always mix those two up too. I can't remember them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to come up with some sort of a yeah. word association to remember. I thought that of thing. that too, then I forget the association. <laughs> I'm sure it, it'll come to us after the episode. Yes. yes. Obviously. Um, no, great, uh, great strategies and tidbits for, for post-traumatic stress. Um, you mentioned GF Strong. Um, for those who are out there that don't know what GF Strong is, it's a, it's a rehabilitation center, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, based out of Vancouver. And you were there for, for how long? Close to 33 years. Wow. Good for you. And, and what were the, I know there's a lot of um, traumatic brain injury uh, patients who were there. Is that the population that you were working with? Uh, about 70% were traumatic brain injury, and the rest were either spinal cord injuries or some form of uh, a non-traumatic brain injury, such as an aneurysm, intracranial bleeds, uh, strokes. And that was the population. Wow. And some amputees. Okay. So needless to say, individuals who have undergone some sort of a, likely some sort of a catastrophic injury to a degree. Yeah, absolutely. And with the traumatic brain injury population, what's the prevalence of a mood disorder like depression or anxiety? If the client has the insight that they have consequences of the injury, um, then uh, then depression can 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 easily set in. But there has to be the awareness, and a fair amount of the population that uh, that I saw did not have what what psychologists call the metacognition, the awareness of self. So the frustrations were mainly with the family members or the, or the partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so a lot of the services were directed uh, to, to that person or those people. Uh, my career started off only with the area of neuropsychological assessments. Okay. And, uh, and then uh, somewhere in the 90s, it goes back many, many years, probably in the 1980s, um, this was when funding for continuing education was uh, uh, more generous than it is now in the public sector. The uh, an occupational therapist and I were um, uh, funded to spend a week in New York City at New York University uh, Institute of Rehabilitation Medicine because the area of cognitive rehabilitation was just starting uh, to be formulated. And so we spent 
a week in workshops, intensive workshops in the area of cognitive rehabilitation, and then brought all that information to GF Strong to set up the cognitive rehabilitation, interdisciplinary cognitive rehabilitation service. Interesting. Interesting. Because I work with, I, I work for UBC as well in concussion mm -hmm. research. Mm -hmm. um, and I work with a lot, I know there's a whole setup there, a, a UBC setup at, uh, at GF Strong there too. And I, mm -hmm. I, yes. I work, I work uh, closely with a lot of the OTs and some of the neuropsychologists oh, okay. there oh, as okay. well. Um, and some so, of those I hired. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> no, that's interesting. You kind of set up yeah. that that or initiated that that whole yeah. program to a degree. Now, j just for people out there who who don't really know what it is, what is cognitive rehabilitation? Well, it's really looking at um, the. Uh, I, I take sort of a very functional approach uh, to looking at what strategies are going to help you out. Uh, to be successful in, let's say, your ADLs or, or putting together whatever meaningful life is, is for you. And uh, it's, uh, so it's really looking at function rather than um, tests, uh, tasks that you can do uh, at, at the desk in the psychologist's office. Let's look at, a, let's do a functional kind of an appraisal as to what's going on. And very often, it was the OT and myself that would work in tandem to identify what those functional areas are, and then we would both come devise for a client some some strategies that they can assist themselves in. Now that was for clients who had the awareness. If the awareness was not there, then it's working with the family to looking at strategies that they can help the person with. Mm. And we we had the uh, I the acronym the WIT approach to rehabilitation, W-I-T. What does that stand the acronym, for? Ah, whatever it takes. Ah, whatever it takes, I love it. So what, what, talk about that a little bit more. Talk about the, talk about wit. Well, uh, there was an, um, an OT, at one point in GF Strong, uh, some of us were looking at um, the, uh, I, the notion of whether or not we were keeping clients on too, too long. Mm. And so we established a committee and looking at a file review going back many years uh, of clients in terms of the average length of stay. And we found out that there was a, uh, a tremendous variability, but you could spend up to four years as an outpatient in outpatient rehabilitation. And my thinking was we are fostering a dependency on the organization as opposed to helping people uh, uh, develop these skill sets on their own. So I and a few others um, got together with uh, some of the neuropsychology people at the University of Victoria at that time. Uh, um, and then put together uh, at OT and I put together a program, a self-management service program. So to fostering uh, the goal of helping the client develop strategies whereby they can manage themselves. And so my, the OT would be working with the person maybe in a Starbucks or some sort of neutral location out there away from GF Strong. And I would be doing what I call more neuropsychological coaching Mm -hmm. over the phone, but mm -hmm. not seeing the client in person. Mm -hmm. Just to try to, 
well, like you said, foster independence and almost to a degree wean them away um, from needing to be within that facility. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe this program is still in existence today. Hey, that's great. Good for you. And you said, you said um, sort of retraining or, or, or teaching strategies with respect to function and, and marrying cog- cognition with function. So what, what, can you give an example of what some of those strategies might be? Well, for instance, let's say a, a, a client is going back into a, a profession where they have to do a large file review. And I have a client now, and I've had a few attorneys that had injury, where they get volume of information, how to break that information down, and how to either and how to either highlight it or to reframe that information so they can consolidate that into more short-term memory storage. Mm. So to approach something, not the task in its entirety, but breaking down those tasks, not dissimilar to what you would provide a client. I mean, I think the strategies are the same, whoever's delivering it. Certainly, certainly. And I mean, that's, that speaks well to me and, and what I do in my day-to-day practice too. And, and, and I like what you said about, it's not whether or not you can, it's not an all or nothing thing. Can you do the task or can't you do the task? It's about what parts of the task can you do and start working on those to a degree and gradually build in some of the parts that are a little bit more challenging. And another area that uh, I talk to clients about is that to convince them that they are in charge of incoming information, both auditory and visual. So if you're at doing stuff at work and someone's knocking on the door and needs to talk to you, how to sort of regulate stimulation so that you feel that you are in charge. So for instance, excuse me, I, I'll be with you in just 30 seconds. I need to close off on this, as opposed to getting overwhelmed with too much informa- incoming information at once and then having the client shut down as a result. Mm-hmm. And I have to put them to practice that myself. Oh, indeed. That, that communication piece. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because assertive communication, which, well, like you said, you have to put into practice yourself, as do I. It's, it's not. It's it's a learned thing, communicating assertively. It almost doesn't come naturally no, for come. so many people. But after an injury like that, when you have limitations, it sounds like people need it more than ever in that in those in those situations in able in order to be able to communicate their needs. Absolutely, and also an area that I focus on too is uh, we know that after a, a brain injury, uh, there. Uh, Frustration thresholds are much lower, so in, so in, in, irritability expressions occur, and then the self-talk of uh, negative ruminations about that uh, subsequently. And so we really talk about, I've got what I call um, the two-second strategy. And, and, I, I, and I preface that, you're going to learn something. It's not going to come automatically right away. But if something is irritable, and to identify physiologically what's going on with the irritability, such as, uh, and see if you can delay a response by two seconds. And by two seconds, your frontal lobe should be able to sort of reframe something in a more diplomatic way. So if your child is acting as a child and you get, hold off for a second or two and then respond. Wow, excellent, 
excellent strategy. I feel like I could use that in my day-to-day -day life with my cat. <laughs> no, it, I think that's applicable to, to, I mean, anyone in daily life. Absolutely. Wow, great. Thank you for that, John. Um, Two-second strategy. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about what you mentioned a few minutes ago about treating not necessarily, in some circumstances, not the patient or the client who might have a mood disorder, particularly when one doesn't have the self-awareness um, of their limitations, but actually treating and supporting the family members, the, the caregivers. Um, how often do, do caregivers or family members experience burnout when dealing with a, a, an individual who has had a traumatic injury? It's inevitable, it's going, it, the, the potential is there. So I emphasize care for the caregivers, that you need to take time out for yourself on a daily basis, no matter how that's operationalized. But you need to acknowledge that you can't give, and you, you can't give and give without um, taking, taking time out for yourself. Um, and um, there's a, in at Larry in psychology, there is this sort of an example, uh, and I use this therapeutically with clients, and I've used it with families. That imagine you're, uh, you know, you're, you're you're living in a farm, uh, on a farm, and there's a barn in the back of the house, and in the house, you have a lot of people coming over for uh, a celebration of something, and you go into the barn, you're looking for something, and all of a sudden you notice that there's this oak barrel in the corner and then this barrel you open the lid up and there's all these floating apples and oh, i'm gonna gather these i'm gonna bring them all in and give everybody an apple now the story is called out of apples okay so, okay i bring my bring my basket i'm gonna have i have an apple for you 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 and then you want something for yourself and All's left is a bucket of tears. There's nothing there. Oh. So I said, you always have to have an apple for yourself. Now, the add-on to that is that I had a client a number of years ago. She was a nurse. And she said, John, I'm going to have to have more than one apple. I have to have a group of applesauce, apple cider, apple pie. And I said, I really like that addition. And I'm going to use that. Um, so it really so don't, you can't. And in the area of mindfulness, there's an area called compassionate caring. Mm -hmm. And you cannot really effectively on a long-term basis care for others without caring for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what self self care is necessary, not adv adv advisable. It's necessary. Part of the deal. It's it's not it's just a recommendation. And I I was acquainting families with you know this this is this is hard stuff. Yes, I wouldn't say this, but my experience is sadly a lot of relationships end because of. Uh, of the nature of the severity of the illness, uh, particularly where there's a lack of awareness. No, that's that's valid. I mean, just just the strain that it puts on a relationship when your life has been turned upside down like that. And I think that was such an excellent, excellent metaphor. That bucket of apples. Um, I'll probably end up using that one down you the line. You can use it. I use it. I, I, different clients say different, give me bits of information. I say, without, without a name, I'm going to use this information in sort of, in my repertoire of, uh, uh, in therapy. 
Indeed, indeed, absolutely. I mean, one of the ones that I I go to quite frequently is the idea of the airplane masks. And um, you know, if you're on an airplane and the and the cabin pressure changes and the masks drop down and you have a dependent, they always say put your mask on first. So before you before you assist a dependent with it. So essentially, mm-hmm. you need to be able to help yourself before you can help other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Great tidbits. Um, so you were there for 33 years, GF Strong. Yes. Yeah. When did you end up retiring? Well, I before I retired, well, a funny um, situation. I, um, oh, and I, and um, I'll, I'll give you the, the some brief history. People used to say to me, right when I was around 61, 62, are you going to retire soon? My response was, well, you know, that's a grown-up decision. And I'm not quite grown-up yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I really had to think about what I wanted to do. And um, uh, I think the question eventually popped into my head, do you, do you want to say you were a psychologist or you still are? Was it part of your identity or is it still? And I thought, oh, this is a good one. And then well, I, I said, it still is. And I, I put in the file folder of my mind years before then at a, workshop on uh, Wexler intelligence test a revision mm-hmm. when I ran into a person whom I had hired years ago, Debbie Sampson. Okay. Yep. I'm actually meeting with Debbie um, in a couple oh, weeks time oh, to, okay. to speak with her, but go on. And, and we were at the workshop together. So she asked me, you know, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know yet. She said, well, if you're thinking of working, give me a call. I thought, I'm going to stick them in the back of my file folder. And so I did. And here I am. It was a, uh, and, uh, I knew uh, I so I sort of wanted a break between working at GF Strong and being involved in, uh, in, in, in back in motion, and I had the opportunity to be a volunteer in the uh, Olympics in working in village administration, and that was a big party. So that was the nice break between working from the public sector, doing something completely different, and then focusing on uh, contract work with back in motion, which I'm still doing today. That's excellent. And I, I want to actually talk a little bit more about that, um, that Olympic party mm-hmm. or the experiences that you had during the Olympics in just a moment. But I like what you said about what you mentioned on the, along the lines of, do I want to tell people that I was a psychologist or, or do I want to tell people and tell myself that I am a psychologist? And I think so much of that comes down to the roles that we have in our lives and how mm-hmm. Our, our lives are so centered around what we do for a living. Um, mm-hmm. It's such a source of our identity. And I have this conversation with my clients all the time about people who are off work uh, for various reasons, whether it be you know, injuries, concussions, mental health disorders, what have you. Um, and as much as so often, you know, people don't want to go to work. And, and myself included some days, there's those days where you just, you don't want to do it. You don't, you don't feel like you have the energy and, and, and you don't feel like you have the motivation or you might be in pain or you might not physically or functionally be able to do it. However, so often it's the best thing for us to go to work. And we associate mm-hmm. that with, it's such a strong association that we have with our self of our, our, our self identity and who we are as an individual. And I, I uh, and I find that with with me. And then what I also tell clients too is that you know, and I use again the behavioral modeling. Now I wake up a lot of times saying, "Oh, I got to go to work today." But once I get out of bed and start the movement, 
Mobility is the key. The energy then catches up and it's the cycle of enthusiasm and movement. So if you're depressed, move out of bed slowly. Don't languish in there. Mm -hmm. um, using inertia to your benefit. Um, yes. I, I agree. I mean, for me, it's 50% of the battle is just getting out of bed. <laughs> After that, I'm already halfway there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Good, good tidbits there, John. So uh, I, I want to talk about what you mentioned about the Olympics as well. That was the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Mm -hmm. I remember what a, what an excellent time. Great, great. Atmosphere. Oh, what an beautiful. atmosphere. Oh, I had a great time. I, had a, I didn't want to leave my shift. I wanted to stay. <laughs> so what, what were you doing? Well, I, I was in village administration right down in the Olympic village there. And, uh, a, a lot, and, uh, Everybody who had come into the village had to surrender their passports and had gone through some sort of a security check in advance. And uh, so I was there. So I had, I was trained in how to examine by uh, tactile experiences only a passport to de determine if it was a real passport or a fake one. And I was trained at the time to by a stopwatch as to how quickly to do that while I'm talking. So there were various role play scenarios. Uh, and then an orientation on various aspects of troubleshooting. So people would come in, athletes, coaches, dignitaries, parents, and uh, trying to help ease their transition and, uh, and to help out in any way that, that I can. Uh, and uh, I had a great time doing that and dealing with all sorts of personalities that were, uh, where, where coping styles were very different across people. Uh, like for the, some the athletes, it sounds like. The, it. Yeah. Uh, the athletes, coaches, uh, some dignitaries too, um, and uh, the various kinds of problem solving. Um, and uh, a couple of uh, incident events that sort of stand out on my mind. Uh, there was a, after uh, Canada women's hockey won the gold mm -hmm. in the U.S. And then it, by that time, it was pretty quiet in the Olympic, in, in, in the admin section. So uh, the, uh, the captain, Haley Wickenhauser, came in and uh, said that she had a friend from Toronto that unexpectedly just flew in. And can that person gain access to the village? And... Uh, I said, well, I can put, uh, what I'll do is I will put a fast track request through to the RCMP. And then she smiled. She said, well, will this, would this help you out? And she allowed, took off her gold medal and just allowed me to hold this for a few moments. And I'm looking at it. And then I'm, I'm, and then I'm trying to give it back. And I said, two more seconds, just <laughs> holding this. Just <laughs> that was a great experience. Um, and the only time I panicked during the event, uh, it was a busy time, uh, time. And then the, uh, the, the then uh, finance, federal finance manager, Jim Flaherty, and his son came in. And passports were surrendered and had to be alphabetized. And mm -hmm. so at the end of the day, he comes out, and I can't find the passports. Mm -hmm. And I, I said to him, he said, please don't take away our funding. Right. <laughs> and he laughed. And, and I had filed inadvertently the passport because it was at, under the file folder of Cameroon, not Canada. 
Ah. So I found it. So these, but it was a fun time and it was an opportune time to sit sometimes with athletes and um, find out, for instance, I always remember one experience. I was talking to one athlete um, and she was partnered with doing ice dancing. And I saw her on the television the night before and she fell a couple of times. Okay. And so I sat with her for a dinner and I was, was coming to the conversation and I said, geez, I saw you last night on TV. How do you feel about this? I said, I've got to look forward. I can't look what happened. And so I use that analogy with clients that for depression or anxiety, that you know, you, when you're thinking of your next goals, there's two choices. You can look with your back to the future and where you've come from, or you can turn around and look where you want to go. Mm. And I said, and I, and I mentioned this Olympic analogy. I said, you know, there's nothing, it, it is, it, it's how humans should, should respond in certain situations. Like I've got to not be tied to past disappointing experiences. I need to sort of park those and look what's coming up. Wow. So fo focus on the, the present and the future to the best Absolutely. that you can. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent advice, uh, John. Thank you so much for that. Uh, you know, on that note, I just want to talk a little bit more about the Olympics for one second. I just want to share yeah. a story. Just, just the, again, that, that vibe, that feel during that whole two-week period, it was, so, it was so palpable. I remember, so the gold medal hockey game, I remember it was on a Sunday at 2 p.m. or something. The like male that. one. That's right, the male one uh, that, we, that, that well. we won. Um, yes. I remember I, I had I had an exam for school the next day actually, and so I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to watch this hockey game by myself in my home, and then I'm going to turn it off and and get to studying here. And so the game finished. It was magical. I mean, just just oh. that win was phenomenal. And I remember going outside. I was like, okay, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to do some studying. And I, I I went outside to go buy some carrots or something like that. And as I stepped outside. The, just the air in the streets of positivity and camaraderie mm -hmm. was so tangible that I ended up walking downtown and just staying out and, and talking to people and hanging out basically all night long. So it just, it just lends some light to how, how magical of a time that was for everyone. So the next morning after I was down in the village and the uh, U.S. coach comes in, very affable individual. And I mentioned, I said, you know, I'm kind of pleased as a Canadian that we won. He said, and congratulations, and today's a lovely day, and I'm going to enjoy this beautiful city. So very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. 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 Great. No, phenomenal. Thanks for sharing that, John. And again, I'm just looking at the time here. Um, so, John, thank you so much for coming. Um, I feel like we could keep talking for the next couple of hours about, uh, about some of the subjects that we've touched on today. And again, I think you've shared some excellent insights that I've benefited from, and I think everyone out there can benefit from as well. So again, thank you so much. Well, and thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Great. Great to hear. And uh, look forward to bumping into you in the hallways. We will. Okay. Okay. Take care, John. Thanks, Joel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
There you have it, folks, Dr. John McDonald. Some great strategies there related to managing emotional concerns like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and, of course, caregiver burnout, as we discussed. Um, really enjoyed talking to John today. I learned a lot, and I hope you did, too, as well. For any more information on Back in Motion as a company, visit us at www.backinmotion.com. Follow us on Instagram at backinmotion underscore health and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash backinmotionhealth and join us in two weeks time. I will be having a discussion with Dr. Debbie Sampson. Debbie is a psychologically healthy workplace consultant. So she consults with workplaces in order to foster positive psychological health. She also happens to be a trained psychologist and the former CEO and president of Back in Motion. So really looking forward to that conversation in two weeks time. And until then, have a nice day. Stay happy. Stay healthy.